Father, we thank you because we know it'll never lose its power, Lord. We've tested it. We've tested, God. There's so many lives here that have tested the power of the blood of Christ. And I am happy to report to you, God, that it has not failed us one time. I thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to us. You're faithful to me, God, when there's so many times I've not, I have not produced a life that has been deserving of your faithfulness. But God, I thank you that you overlook God my problems and you overlook my inadequacies. And you love me uh, for your son and for yourself, Lord, that you might be glorified. Thank you, Lord, today. I pray that you be upon us, Lord, in all that we do. Allow our word and our mind, God, to enter in into your word. God, change us, renew us. So that our lives every day, God, might celebrate the blood that was shed for us. We ask it, Father, today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated this morning. Man, that was good. That was good. I, I need to tell you this morning. Can I just come down here and share heart? So this is, the, this is the living room, right? Welcome back to the living room. You're just, imagine, you're just, you're in Pastor Scott's living room. We're just talking today just talking today. We're talking about this prayer thing, and prayer is not an easy thing for us to entertain all the time. First, it's difficult because it requires discipline, amen? Because you pray every morning, you know how, how, how difficult that is, right? Everyone who prays every morning, raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see that. I saw all those hands go up. It's difficult. It's difficult. And so when we look at prayer, there's something that I think we should understand right away is that before we begin to pray prayers of supplication or petition or anything else, there's this thing called repentance that is so significant. And for you and I, if we can learn the art of repenting, changing our hearts and changing our minds, the Lord will use us in a way we've never realized before. So pray with me, Father. I pray right now you would equip our minds, Lord, to know how to ask for forgiveness. God, not we're trying to constantly uh, apologize for everything, but Lord, we want to be the people you want us to be. Not do the things you want us to do, but be the people you want us to be. And that process comes, Father, through repenting while you change us, helping us have a change of mind about ourselves and you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got a problem this morning I got to tell you about. I got a problem. And my problem is, is this, is that I oftentimes believe the lie over the truth. And, and the truth of it is, is that it's about God. There is a lie about God that exists, and I oftentimes find myself engaging that lie as if it were the truth. And I somehow in my life adopt it and allow it to, to change the way I approach him, change the way I approach others. And for whatever reason, I know it's a lie, but still, yeah, I call it the truth. That's my problem. My problem is that when I go before God, I look at him and I look at me and I say, I don't know how you love me. Surely you can't love me. If I was God, I would not love me. Because when I go before God, I see the issues of my life, right? I, 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 I make the mistake, which I think we oftentimes do. We make one of the greatest mistakes that there are, and it's that we, we think that God's love is our love, that God loves the way that we love. And we know that's not true, but that's how we live, 
right? We go before God and we say, oh, Lord, I don't know if you can hear me. I don't know why you would hear me, Lord. I feel so unrighteous and, and so true and untrue. And, and, and so I'm, I just pray that, that you would hear my prayer. And we have no confidence, right? We have no strength in our prayer because if we're being honest, we look at our merits or lack thereof, and we say, why would you listen to me? Why would a holy God leave his throne room and come down and be in my presence? Why would he descend to where I'm at? Do you not know who I am, God? Do you not see what I've done? Have you not saw the attitudes and the actions of my heart? See, we have this problem. We have this problem. And God has given us the beauty of repentance that as we pray, a heart that's repentant, we can move past all of our insecurities and move on to the promises of God. But even though we know that that's the truth, we still yet have a problem with it. And I will remind you of a few things this morning. That for you and I to draw near to God, Scripture says that we must, we must first believe that He is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that we seek him. But the, but the, the force of that message in Hebrews eleven six 6 says that if we are to draw near to God, we must first believe that he is. And the problem with our prayer life is that prayer simply is this. Prayer is a response to the knowledge of God, but our knowledge is fragmented. We get a little piece over here, a little piece over there, and, and we may hear this and hear that. And then we have this experiential knowledge of God, and then we have this this uh, knowledge of God we read in his word, and everything's not putting together. And so we're responding to God in, in fragmented forms, and we don't truly understand who God is. And so since we don't understand truly who God is, we respond to him in the best way we know possible. And that's at different levels. But the Lord says that if we come to God, we must first believe that he is. And so the understanding of who God is is paramount in prayer so let me just help you that if you struggle in prayer it's probably because you don't have the understanding of who God is the way you desire your prayers could be could be bigger than the God you're praying to because the God you're praying to is limited by your knowledge of him if he's only answering you based off what you ask for thankfully God knows what we need Think there's a, there's a priest in heaven who, who hears our prayers and he responds to the callings and groanings of our heart. And thankfully, he doesn't, he doesn't make me say everything I need. Because if I only prayed the things that he could answer, I don't think I'd have anything at all. But thankfully, I have a father in heaven that says, I hear you, Scott. There's a God in heaven who heard the cries of the children of Israel in Egypt. Did they know what they needed? No. But God the Father says, I hear their cries and I respond to him. But for you and I to further our prayer ability or further our prayers in the intimacy of God, we must have the knowledge of God. How can you be intimate with something that you have no knowledge of? And so it is very important that you and I understand this. It's also important that as we get into the identity of God, that we're also looking at this very existence. I, I need to put something out before you that kind of just will premise today in terms of understanding who God is. There is a passage uh, in Exodus that is very fundamental to knowing who God is. And that passage simply says, 
I am that I am. I don't think there's more of a simple yet complex statement in all of Scripture. What do you mean? I mean that I am that I am. The oceans of that application are insane. And it is easy for you and I to say, okay, he is that he is. And just go on with the story of Exodus. But we miss out a humongous understanding about God. Because again, prayer is responding to the knowledge of God. How do you know that he can heal you if you don't know he's a healer? How do you know he can save you if you don't know he's, he is our savior? You understand that prayer is responding to our knowledge to God. And so there is um, a, a phrase I want to kind of put in your mouth today. If you'll go with me, we need to see God in a greater way. Uh, Tozer said this. He said, all of who God is does all of what God does. And so we want to see how God is singular in this fashion, how all of who he is does all of what he does. But before we get there today, we're going to look at three building blocks uh, that will really aid us in our ability. And if you don't mind, uh, I'm just going to do my best to just kind of just teach you today. Just want to teach today. That means this. That means you guys are going to pay attention. You're going to have to stay clued in. I, I, you may drop off, but get right back in there, okay? Um, because we need to know who this God is that we serve. And I think if we can understand some deeper things about him, that it will enrich our lives, not just in experience, but in knowing him and the intimacy that goes with him. So today we're going to see God with greater uh, perspective. That's important. We're going to approach him um, with a, how, how he prescribes, actually. We're also going to talk about the premise of repentance as well. So how do we come and what does, what does um, repentance look like for us? What premise is it built upon? How can we be forgiven? And so as we start there, let me just say, repeat after me, all of who God is does all of what God does. Say again with me. All of who God is does all of what God does. That simply means that God is singular and that there's no aspect of God that operates apart from his other aspects. God is, um, probably the best way to describe it is God is like, and I'm going to heavily use that word, that simile, like a diamond, and that you may change the diamond and see different dimensions and aspects of it, but it's all the same thing. And so you may see God's love, you may see God's mercy and grace and joy, and you may see all those things, but, but all of those things are one. And not one of those things do anything without the other one coinciding entirely. So that means God's love is fulfilled completely in God's wrath. And God's wrath is fulfilled completely in God's love. God's joy is filled completely in his mercy, his, his forgiveness, his love, his righteousness, his grace, everything, even his vengeance, all of this is wrapped up in everything that he does for all of who God is, does all of what God does. There's no separating him. So that means that when you get, you get your spanking from the Lord, he really does love you. You know, our parents told that lie growing up, you know what I mean? It's going to hurt you more, it hurts me. I love you. No, you, no, you don't. No, you don't. If you loved me, we would just be done with this matter, right? 
But knowing as you became a parent, you realized this is going to hurt me. <laughs> and you just cringed that you said those words because you knew of the hypocrisy. And so the Lord is the same. He, all of what he does, whether it be grace, wrath, judgment, love, all of him is wrapped up in that. And so maybe the best way for me to explain um, how important that is to our prayer life is to understand that God has a skill. Let me just read this to you. Psalms chapter 8, verse 1 through 9. I, I looked hard, and this is about the best that I can find, trying to understand the scale of God. It says in Psalms 8, 1 through 9, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established your strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moons and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What is man? That you would be mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works and of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When, when, I, think about, when I think about the Lord and how much he's done for me, I have to understand that there is a distance between he and I. That, that, that there is a, we just sing about that, there's a chasm that sin separates us. That it, it did not used to be there, but now that it is there because of fallen man. But I know this is that when I come to God and I understand that, that there is this separation there, if I don't really feel like God saved me from much because I'm really a good person, I just understand that I'm, that I'm a sinner, but really I'm a good person. I've got most of my life, you know, in check. It's, it's good. And so I might as well go ahead and be all the way good and just believe in this God who saved me. And so for those who would say that, we need about this much of the Lord because this is where we are, and this is where he is, and this is the sin that's in our life. This is how much we really need him. And so, therefore, the problem with that is, is that if this is the amount of sin that's separating us, then this also is the amount of love that is demonstrated to save us. If this is the amount of unrighteousness that is separating God and us, then this is the amount of righteousness that Jesus gave to us. The problem is, is that I know it's more than that. In fact, going back to the singular aspect, right, that all of who God is does all of what God does. That means if this was about this much sin for him to cover, then that means this is about how much holiness offended him. How only offended you that much? Now, some of y'all might be more like me, and we got to stretch the line out a little bit. And we realize that there's a major chasm between both of us. And the cool thing about this is that as I begin to see God uh, become greater in my life and me to become lesser, then I realize that if 
I now realize how unrighteous I was. Because this is how much holiness that was there. And this is how much I offended God. And this is how much wrath I deserved. But God loved me this much. And he gave me this much righteousness in Christ. And this much grace has been applied in my life. The problem is that I'm not perfect the moment he saved me. And I still yet battle from day to day. I still yet call upon the God to forgive me. And so I need a little bit more. And where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You understand that the concept is simply this, is that grace is looking at sin saying, how much should I go? How much should I go? Because when sin increases in your life, grace is like, okay, let's go. Let's go. You still back there, sin? You still back there? Because no matter how much sin is in your life, you must understand that so long as the, as, the, as the child of God is pursuing the Father in you, that if there's this much sin, then there's this much grace. If there's this much unrighteousness in your life, then there's this much love that has covered your unrighteousness, and therefore now you experience this much righteousness. Which means you also have this much confidence to come to God. Now, maybe you're not perfect enough still yet, and you continue to sin. But can I tell you that God knows no extent to your sin, and however much unrighteousness you produce, now you see, oh my Lord, look at all he has done in my life. It used to be just this, but look how righteous he is. Look how, look how holy he is. Look how powerful he is. All of who God is is all of what God does. So he never separates himself. That's why when we come to, to pray, we have to understand that the only limit in us understanding God really is your inability to realize how unrighteous you are. Because when you limit how much you need God, you have limited God altogether. Because if you only need this much blood, this much salvation, this much change, this much more kindness, and you have minimized every single aspect of a God we call singular because all of who he is is all of what he does. And I do not pray that I know him more because my unrighteousness grows more, (laughs) but I do hope. And I do understand that when I come to God in prayer and and as I begin to stretch out all the things I've done and all the things I think, that the Lord remind me, Scott, you can make the bridge as long as you want. I'm still going to walk across that. I'm still going to come to you. We see this in Genesis 2-7. We know that we're not great and and we're we're not wonderful. We understand where we're at as men. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Notice that the only valuable thing in you is the breath of life. The way God created animals was the way that he created you, formed you from the ground. The difference was he breathed his life into you. The only value that you have is him. But we can further that later on. We'll talk about how we were made in his image. But first you must understand is that when we look at God, 
the first thing you need to know is that looking at him should produce humility in you. You should know that you are not like him. You can never aspire to be like him. You'll never, in fact, Job has this huge diatribe where, where the Lord says, uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who, who stretched the line upon it? Uh, when, the, when the bases of it were sunk and the morning stars sang for glory, can I hear where you were at, Job, just for action like a man? Let me ask you some questions and you tell me. We, we can't. And so as we understand who God is and who we're not, it produces in us humility. And humility is absolutely important for repentance. For if the scale of God or the perspective of God produces anything, it produces the prerequisite of repentance, and that is humility. In fact, humility is something that God is absolutely drawn to. You may have heard of uh, King Ahab. Uh, King Ahab had a wife, his, and her name was Jezebel. You probably heard that term at work somewhere, right? I remember you brought somebody home one afternoon, and your mom said, Oh, you done brought Jezebel home, huh? None of y'all. None of y'all. Holy people. You're holy. Holy people. I'm so glad I got all of y'all in here today. So, so Ahab, Ahab is the least favorite of all the kings because he is the most evil king in Israel's um, timeline. In fact, it was said of King Ahab, there was none who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And so what we see is that of all the people who would lead Israel into wickedness, King Ahab was absolutely the worst. But notice what it says, 1 Kings 21, 27 through 29, how God responds to King Ahab. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, I don't know what you've done. But I want you to put this in your memory that when you go to God and you feel those thoughts of condemnation come upon you, not conviction. Conviction breathes life. Condemnation robs it. And so when you're in prayer and you feel the lie of the enemy telling you, you're the worthless piece of trash that ever opened your mouth and said, Abba, Father, shut it up. We all know who you are. You're worthless. Can I just tell you for a second, real fast, you are worthless. If we can just agree with that, the enemy has no right. You are absolutely worthless. I just came to pastor you today. Let me tell you why you're worthless. Answer this question. When Jesus saved you, did he become your worth or just add to it? What did he do? Did he just add to your worth? You, you had a little bit of worth, but it wasn't really great. But when Jesus saved you, now you have more worth. No, 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 I would tell you that you had no worth at all. 
You are are without anything. And the only value that you have is the value that you were paid to be redeemed by. In fact, the value that you have is intrinsic to the image of God that's inside of you because outside of the image of God in you, you are nothing more than dirt. So when the enemy comes to you and says, you are worthless, just say, I know, that's good. You've not told me anything new, Satan. I appreciate that. Go about your way. But there is something in me that's greater than me, than he that is in the world. And so when I stand before God, I am a son of the living God. I am a daughter of the living God. I am a child. He has put an adoption spirit inside of me that I now say, Abba, Father. And so, yes, you're right. I may be worthless, but there is a spirit and a life and an identity in me that is not my own, but I gladly give this body, this shell, this soul, so that his spirit might animate me and cause value and know my kinship to my Father. So, yes, you may be right. I may be worthless, but I'm not rejected. I'm accepted. And quit being so jealous over me, Satan. I'm sorry you got rejected and kicked out. But I appreciate the home you left for me (laughs) as I take it over. He does come with those thoughts. If God will save King Ahab, who else will he save? 2 Chronicles 7, 14, you've heard this before. There is a a process and a principle that when God saves and moves upon a nation, it's because they've humbled themselves. They have found repentance. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and, and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so... God gives us a promise, and we see this principle through and through. If you look at all the great awakenings and revivals throughout history, what you see is this, is that the catalyst to every great revival is always repentance. It's always repentance. Hear me today. When the people of God knew that his presence was far and that they needed him and he was not near and that the world and their life was, was, was hard, they, they repented. They did not say, Lord, we need you to come and fix the government. Lord, we need you to come and establish my lifestyle. Lord, come establish your pleasantries in my life. They said none of those things. What they said, Lord, is, oh, God, forgive us. Forgive us. God responds to a humble heart. God responds to a repentant heart. If he can respond to King Ahab, although he was in, he was in covenant love with God, God still responds to a heart that calls out to him. Let me just show you if I can illustrate this even further. You read the story of Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because they were fish slappers. Some of y'all got that. Some of y'all are like, ah, that's a VeggieTales joke. If you haven't watched VeggieTales, then get saved. All right. So Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh really has raped, pillaged, sacrificed, murdered. They, 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 they were not friends of Israel. And so Jonah's like, why would I want them to know salvation? They are everything other than what you have called us to be in this life. But notice, God has a calling for them. He wants them to hear the word of the Lord, that they might repent. And because this, these apostate, backslidden, I don't even backslidden, they never even knew God, called out to God, God heard them. 
Jonah 3, 6 through 10 says this, the word reached the king of Nineveh. That word, that's like the gospel right there. And he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste or anything, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Man. And he says later on, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And we, we know that he did. He didn't destroy them. So here's what I'm seeing when I'm going to God in prayer, right? You're, this is my journey. You're just with me on this. When I go to God in prayer... Scott Brandon goes into God, and I, I have all these thoughts about how I'm inadequate, uh, how I'm not supposed to be anything but what, what the world wants me to be, and, and, and then I had this issue of unrighteousness in my life and my past. And then I, I have all these reasons why I want the Lord to, to not listen to me and love me. But then his word reminds me, Scott, if I can hear the heart of a king who did more wicked in leading a country to be judged by my hand, I'll hear you today as well. Also, Scott, if a whole nation of people who lived contrary to my word and contrary to my character called upon me, I would hear them repent, I would hear them humble themselves, and I would respond to them. So how much more, Scott, you, can you possibly put in my way, that I would not want to redeem you and hear your call and hear your prayer. Can I tell you this? That if you struggle with the presence of God, repent. Not repent because you don't have the presence of God, but you should know that repenting brings down God's presence. He longs to be in a place where we realize and own up to our sin because in repentance, we're saying, God, I'm not enough. I want to be more like what you created me to be. And as I repent and go through the forgiveness process, my life becomes more like he desired to become because I start to embrace the image of God and I let go of the image of man. And so if you really need the presence of God in your life, can I tell you that the realness of your forgiveness will reveal the realness of God's felt presence. When you are real in your forgiveness before God, you will know the presence of God. It will match that feltness that comes when his presence does come. So it is important that you understand that principle. Not only did Ahab, not only did Nineveh understand this, but also David understood this. David was a man after God's own heart. But as we've talked before, how in the world can someone like David be after God's own heart when he was a murderer and a liar and a cheater and all those things? Can I tell you that if I had a friend who lied to me, cheated on me, uh, um, he murdered someone close to me, he stole from me, I would not say he asked for forgiveness, he wants to please me, look at my best friend, he's a man after my own heart. That's because that's how you and I look at love. But the Lord looks at something completely different. And so when we look at David's prayer, what does it reveal to us? Look at David's prayer in Psalms 51. Can I tell you that if you are struggling in habitual sin, 
if you are struggling with addiction, if you are struggling with anything that causes you to constantly repent and ask God for forgiveness, and you are at the place that you are sick and tired of asking God to forgive you, then stop using your words and start praying the word of God. And right here in Psalms 51 is a prayer that a man prayed who was led under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is how you ought to properly repent. I could preach a whole sermon series on this, but today we'll just go for a few minutes. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. I need you to rip out the page in your Bible. I need you to fold up the corners of that page until you see steadfast love. That needs to be somewhere in your life every time you look at it. It is absolutely important. The, the, the Hebrew word is hasid. It means loyal love. It means a covenant love. That means a love that you can't break. You don't decide, that it's, you don't decide when God stops loving you. A covenant is not a contract. It's not conditional. A covenant is simply God saying, regardless of what you do or what you say, I'm loving you. I'm going to love you. And you can't change my mind about that. And that's what he's saying right here. According to that covenant, steadfast, loyal love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If I can just recap really fast, let me just remind you. Our perspective is repentance. Our perspective in repentance provides the prerequisite for repentance. And that prerequisite is humility. Humility is what we must have when we come to God for forgiveness. But what is the premise of repentance? What, what, what does that mean? The premise of repentance is found in the unconditional love of God. Notice God's love in this way. Jeremiah 31.3 says this, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You know in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.4-5 says this, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even while we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and first john 4 10 says in this is love this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins i want to talk to you about the love of god for a second uh, as I was studying yesterday, I just, it just, I never knew this before. And it radically changed my thought process on a lot of things, and I'm hoping that today it'll do the same for you. Because when you and I think about the love of God, what we think is simply this. We think that God loves us by this boundless, shoreless, um, bottomless love. And that's true. But God does not love you and I directly. The reason why is that God cannot love you and I directly. 
See, we know what love is because we love as the Father loves, and any effect, any process of love that you and I experience is because of it's modeled after him. So when I love Julie, there's a reciprocation in that. I derive something from her love as well as my, as my kids. Love is putting me out there and receiving as much as it is giving. And so God is self-existent. He needs nothing. And so for God to love something other than himself would be for him to love and derive something that is impure and unholy. Are you following me today? So, again, love is something that we give, but also we derive from something as well. So when God loves us, you should know that God does not really love us directly, but he is loving himself in us. He sees in you the image of himself. Let me give you an example. When he looks at certain aspects of his life or the things he's created, it reminds him of certain things. When God looks on his sun and his moon and all the stars that he has made, his lakes, his rivers, his mountains, his seas, God loves them because they remind him of his own wisdom and the power that gave them being. But when God looks at the seraphim and the cherubim, the holy angels around the throne, he loves them because they remind them of his holiness. See, here's the question for you and I, is that when God looks at you, is there something in you that reminds him of himself? Because this is the problem of sin, that you and I, we allow the image that God put inside of us to be, to be um, uh, for a lack of better words, prostituted out for other things. Because we want joy in our life, and so what we do is we look at the image of something else and say, I want that, so let me act like that. Let me put on that image, and so we might have its benefit in our life. We see this constantly in social media, but this is far beyond social media. So what I want you to understand is that when God loves you, he sees in you himself. So God loves you for his sake, for himself. You must understand what this does in repentance. God does not want to forgive you because he's such a good and loving God and he thinks that you're a great person who just needs a little help. For God to save you and forgive you is to bring you back to full resolution of what he loves most, himself. And so that means that anything that you do in your life means nothing because he has all of the redemptive power he has in his hand. So long as he sees an image of himself in you, he can redeem and move all those things out of the way and say, there I am in him. Now, at first, it hit me a little bit difficult, and I thought, well, Lord, you don't, you don't love <laughs> You don't love me? I, I thought it was me. There was something special about me. But yes, he absolutely loves you. But understand that the thing that he loves directly is himself. But we experience God's love for himself through our being. Don't let that minimize God's love. Let that maximize God's love. Let, let, me, let me help you out a little bit. Say, Pastor Scott, this, this, this is a bit off for me. I thought God just loved me. And you know what? If that's where you need to be, that's where you need to be. But let me show you in Hebrews. 
Hebrews 6.13 says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That means God is looking around and saying, is there anything that I can derive truth from or power from or accountability? And since none of that is there, I had to swear by myself. And so if God cannot find truth in another place or love in another place other than himself, then you should know that he is not going to derive anything from us that does not reflect him. Now here's the greatness to that. Regardless of how much I mar this image, there is still an image of God in me. And so God does not hear your prayer because you merited well. God does not hear your prayer because you have a lot of potential. God does not forgive you and save you for anything to do with you, but he looks in you and says, if I can save her, if I can save him, I'll see myself once again. And they'll know the love and the joy and the, and the glory that I share with my son. They'll be able to experience that because they'll be in the process. So what that says to me is simply regardless of how far I push God, regardless of how, how much I, and, until I get to the place where I can't repent, until hell erases God's image in my life, I'm at a place I can always call on God. I can always ask for forgiveness. Because my image and my identity is found in him. The problem we have with not understanding that is that you and I typically borrow identity and images from other people. Specifically in our children. Because when our children grow up on our faith, the problem is they're trying to live out someone else's identity through Christian behavior. And they come to a place that they burn up and they become empty. And they, they realize this is not worth it anymore. That's why our, children's, our children must have their own identity in Christ. You must have your own identity in Christ. You must know the image of God that's inside of you and how God longs to live through you. And if you don't have that, you'll borrow from the world trying to figure out who you are. Never having the joy. Never having the love that God desires you. You just see what the world is advertising and you think, if I act that way, I'll have what they have but all joy love and peace and comfort comes from God alone and you'll never have that if you don't understand the image of God in you and that image of God in us is the love of God through us so that when you go to work and your boss comes down on you hard and you put that smile on and say Lord I don't got no image today it's got to be all you I need to walk in the confidence knowing that you live in me and I'm representing you. Do you know that you are redeemed with silver? Caleb, would y'all come? You are redeemed with silver. Silver is the most reflective quality, has the most reflective uh, um, metal known in man. That means that silver reflects more spectrums of light than anything else. Now take that into account for a second. Silver reflects the whole spectrum of light. It reflects everything that looks into it, and you and I were redeemed with silver so that when God looks into his image, he sees exactly himself, that there's nothing there. In fact, silver also is not just the most reflective metal that there is. It's also the most conductive. That means everything that comes into silver flows right through silver. 
that all power that comes into silver flows right out of silver. You and I have been redeemed with silver. You and I have been bought back with silver. That silver was, was, was the type and the shadow in the Old Testament, but it translated into the New Testament as the blood of Christ because Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. So what I want you to understand today is simply this, is that when we go to God in prayer and repentance, and we're about to do that here in just a second, I want you to understand that every lie you can possibly conjure up, every reason why the Lord won't hear you, I want you to put that aside and realize that the only reason why God is looking to call upon you is because his love for you. Because as he looks into your life, he sees what he loves the most. In other words, you remind him of himself. Think of it differently. I don't know about many of you, but the words you remind me of your father, those are not good words with me. You want to get punched in the mouth, just say, you look, you look just like your dad, all right? Those are not good words. But some of you have had a great dad in your life. And when they come to you and they say, you, you remind me of your father. You go, do I? That's a great man right there. Everybody thinks highly of my dad. You can say I look like my dad all I want. Now, you may not look like him, but, they were, but you, remind, you remind that person of your father. Maybe for like me... When you hear those words, I'm, I'm not too proud about that. And so when I was contemplating this passage, and I realized that being in the image of God is simply this. I'm just reminding people of my Father. I'm His image. And so I would ask you today, it says, what comes over your heart when people say, you look just like your Father? Because however you have that Whatever connotation hits you when you hear that. The problem is that we take our problems with our earthly fathers and we project them on our heavenly father. And so if you're like me, it's a struggle to get from here to there. I pray you had a great dad in your life that said, no, nah, they're just about the same to me. But today we need to understand when we come before the heavenly father and we ask God, for repentance. We ask God for forgiveness. It's like asking a good dad who understands our life and forgives us so that there's no, no condemnation. So here's my call today. My only goal, my only goal today was this, is that the next time you call on God, there is no more condemnation in you that you can move past every lie the enemy would put upon you and you can call upon your Father in boldness and confidence knowing that He will hear you. Hear me. Hear me today. I don't, know, I don't know where you're at, but you need to understand this. You are not, if He is your Father, you are not unrighteous. You are not unworthy. You are not unloved. You are not um, without acceptance. God has fully accepted you, and you are fully righteous before the king. When you pray, hear me, you are fully righteous before the king. That's just not biblical words. You need to understand that when I pray, my words are heard on high. 
And so today, I want to ask you to join me in prayer. We're going to open up the altars. You can turn as you are. We're not going to dismiss service today at all as a formal dismissal. Leave when you need to. By the way, before we leave, I hope I see you at Fall on the Farm. That's going to be a great time. But as we open the altars up, I want you to ask God, Lord, first off, like David, search me. If there's anything in my life that I don't see, if there's anything that's marring your image in me, make it known. Make it known. Because when I stand before you, I want all of your image to be known to you and to man. That you are my father and you are my king. And I pray that's the only prayer we have today. Is to keep it simple and say, Lord, show me in my areas of my life we need forgiveness. I'm going to pray and then, and then we can move. Father in heaven, I ask you and I thank you that I can come to you and I know that I am accepted because, Lord, you've done everything in heaven and earth, Lord, to redeem me. And, God, regardless of any problems I have in my life, Lord, so long as I humbly present myself Lord, I know you'll see your image in me. And I pray, God, you'd respond to our prayer, that you would save us. God, I pray that you would make alive and make aware, Father, anything that is hidden in us that we need to remove from our mirror that shows the world who you are. Cleanse us of every ounce of sin that there is. Forgive us, God, of every bit of unrighteousness. Search our life, oh God. I pray, make us whole, make us holy. Most importantly, make us like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. And would you come, would you find a place of prayer?